A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History of Age, the podcast where we get historians to let slip the dogs of revolution. The podcast where our heritage community rings the liberty bell for truth, justice and the historian way. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with my good friend and the man who cannot tell a lie, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we are crossing over to the Atlantic. So prepare yourself for a long voyage, both in distance and back in time, because we're looking at the Americas and the legend of independence. To take us on this journey, we welcome historian and writer, Dr. Robbie McNiven. Robbie, welcome to History Rage. Hi, everyone. It's an absolute delight to be here. It sounds it. <laughs> Come on, emotion. Yeah, no, <laughs> Sorry, that's just my generic podcast. Hello. Hi, guys. How's it going? <laughs> well, we are not your generic podcast, as you may well yeah, have heard. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so... As uh, as the accent might suggest there, you're not American. So can you tell us a bit about kind of your background and how you ended up looking at this particular field of history? Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, essentially, when I was 14, I watched The Patriot and I've been raging ever since. But, <laughs> right. uh, uh, so that resulted in me uh, going to uni, studying history, uh, going all the way through to doing a PhD in the American Revolution, and uh, here I am, you know, a couple of years afterwards. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not sure. I think it's the fact that uh, in the UK, the revolution isn't really spoken about because if you're into that rough time period, you're into Napoleonics. Whereas, mm. needless to say, in the US, everyone talks about the revolution. So it's uh, quite often been a bit of a one-sided story in terms of uh, popular history about it. So, yeah, I guess I'm trying to set some of the records straight. Yeah, in a way that the Patriot doesn't. Mm, yeah. Yes, it is a lot to answer for. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that, yes. Okay, so given that we've given one or two hints as to what we might be doing uh, this about, Robbie, would you please tell our waiting mob of would-be revolutionaries what you wish people would just stop believing? Uh, I wish people would stop believing that guerrilla tactics won the american revolution and that the redcoats just didn't know how to fight in forests okay expand yeah that's that's the long and the short of it uh, there's this sort of it's pretty well known in the u.s maybe less well known here that uh, there's a concept that the british army of the 18th century would all just line up in neat rows in their bright red uniforms with their cross belts making them perfect targets and then those wily american frontiersmen with their Long rifles would snipe them from a distance, and the Redcoats just didn't know what to do. How could they fight these wily enemies? Uh, which is just complete and absolute bollocks. It's it's not true at all. If anything, the British used guerrilla tactics as much, if not more, than the uh, revolutionaries during the periods, and uh, the British Army was extremely well adapted to fighting in North America. So, uh, yeah, just the whole founding myth. Um, I've read... Kind of interestingly that supposedly this idea that it was these guerrillas that won the war for America emerged in the 1960s and 70s as a response to Vietnam, whereby Americans were seeing what uh, guerrillas could do uh, to the world's best army at the time, and uh, were saying, oh, well, this must be how we beat the Brits. 
which uh, yeah, false, fake news, as a certain American would say. <laughs> so, so to start us off, then we're going to go less about the tactics at the start. We will get to that, but you would think, certainly from a British point of view, that from the way it's presented, Declaration of Independence happens second of July, not fourth. Correct. And then Britain sends in the troops. They get their asses handed to them at the Battle of Yorktown. And boom, we have America. Land of the free, star-spangled banners ahoy. Now, the conflict is a lot longer than than we give it credit for, isn't it? And it's there's an awful lot more going on, both actually on the ground and geopolitically around the world. So... And I appreciate we've only got a 45-minute podcast. Can you give us a potted guide to the American War of Revolution? Um, I can do my best. We'll fly through it quickly year by year. Uh, so initially you have uh, the Battles of Lexington and Concord, which are the legitimate instance of militia employing what we might call guerrilla tactics nowadays to more or less defeat or at least drive off uh, regular British troops. Uh, the British then end up holed up in Boston, uh, which leads to a very disastrous battle at Bunker Hill, which is, in a way, the low point for British adaptability during the war, because they just attack uh, rebel-held fortifications head-on, and they get kind of decimated. Again, they kind of win. They take the ground, but they suffer so many casualties doing so. So the army then adapts itself after that, uh, and we'll talk about the tactics later on, because that's going to be um, sort of the fun the fun part. So yeah, after, after being driven out of Boston, the British come back, they capture New York, and they run into the issue of how do you defeat a popular rebellion? You can't just kill everybody in North America, obviously, uh, despite what some British officers might have wanted. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of win the hearts and minds. The British decide that the best way to do this is to defeat the main Continental Army under George Washington. And if they do that, then they think that the colonists will say, oh, well, you know, how can we possibly win now? Let's just give up. Uh, and George Washington is aware of that, and he does his very best to make sure that he doesn't get drawn into a pitched battle with the British army. Uh, and if he loses, if he is in a pitched battle and he loses, he's able to retreat and get his men out. So over the next few years, 77, 78, 79, it's kind of a game of cat and mouse. Uh, Washington trying to inflict damage on the British bit by bit, but not be drawn into a destructive battle of annihilation. Uh, he does that very well. He loses loads of battles. That's maybe a whole separate topic, the rage about whether George Washington is a good general or not. Uh, so tactically, he's, he's pretty poor, but strategically he does well because he keeps his army intact against the odds. And then in 78, the French see that the Americans or the rebel Americans don't seem like they're going to lose, at least not anytime soon. So they come in on the side of the rebellion and then that just changes the whole dynamic because it becomes a global war. It's uh, Britain now has to think about defending its uh, other colonial territories from French and then Spanish and even Dutch attacks. And mm-hmm. the focus stops being North America. And so the Americans then, or the rebel Americans, have the opportunity to strike out. And uh, the British shift their strategy in 1780 because they know it's not working in America. They think that there are more loyalist Americans in the southern colonies. So they decide to shift their center of operations from New York down to Charleston in South Carolina, that doesn't really work out. Uh, they do make ground initially, but again, it's they can't win a decisive battle. They can't lure the rebels into a decisive battle. Uh, and that eventually falls apart when Cornwallis ends up at Yorktown. Now, even that's not the end, because then there's another two years of fighting, some of which involves fighting outside of North America that's very important to the actual global conflict. Uh, so the Battle of the Saints, for example, the French win a naval victory over the French. Sorry, the British win a naval victory over the French and... That stops them from capturing Jamaica, which is a very important colonial possession in the Caribbean for Britain. But American historians don't talk about that much because Yorktown, 1781, and it's all over, even though the yeah. history books also have to admit that 1783 is uh, the actual end of the war. Yeah, yeah. and a nice, neat wrap-up for your side, rather than having to include all the friends. Exactly. Nobody wants to talk about the French and the British. Yeah. We've done an entire episode of VE days, not the end of World War Two. This is this there is not an unheard of yeah. thing. Yeah, there you go. You know, you're talking to a guy here that actually thought that the American War of, uh, of Independence was 1776, and there you go. Yeah, so, well, again, easy misconception because there's so much emphasis on the Declaration of Independence, which didn't really do much when it was signed. It was the start of just the first year into the war, and 
the Americans used it uh, for propaganda purposes to big themselves up, but some people just, a lot of people didn't take any notice of it because, you know, it's not worth the paper it's written on if George Washington ends, ends up captured in New York. So uh, the, the sort of in-the-moment impact of the declaration is somewhat less than what it yeah. became. In the, yeah, it's only an iconic of, thing if you win, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and, you know, without that, Nicolas Cage would have had nothing to steal. Exactly. So we would have been deprived of some of the greatest films of the 21st century. <laughs> Indeed. So come on, then. we'll get into yeah. the bulk of this. Yeah. Kyle, if you want to yeah, dive yeah. in with the, with, with the question that he's itching to answer. Yeah. Right, so let's get into this. So if the Americans, the patriots, whatever you want to call them, don't really use guerrilla tactics, and the regulars, the British don't always line up in neat little rows in their red uniforms with the big, as we've already discussed. What are the tactics used by people on both sides? So mostly it's a variation of standard 18th century European warfare. The variation comes in so much as the terrain is a lot more broken in North America. There genuinely are more forests and mm. stuff like that to break up lines of long formations of men. So lines tend to be more spread out so that troops can manoeuvre around trees and over walls and stuff without banging into each other. And there's also very little cavalry in North America. Uh, it's just a pain to get horses over, and there's not that many horses in the North American continent at that point. So if there's not much cavalry around, then you can have your troops spread out in nice sort of long scattered formations because they're not going to get ridden down by a sudden group of saber-wielding maniacs. So... Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was that kind of fighting, but it was still linear. So it was still lines going up against each other quite frequently in open battles, which happens a lot. It was the it was still the most common mode of warfare. You did have a lot of guerrilla fighting or style fighting by both sides. Uh, the British quickly developed their light infantry to be able to cope with uh, American sharpshooters, so stuff like riflemen, who are like a whole different topic, which I can talk about at length. But uh, the British quickly adapted to this style because they had been fighting in North America previously. They fought in North America in the Seven Years' War. It was about uh, 15 years previous to the revolution. So although a lot of the average soldiers weren't necessarily, hadn't been in the army for 15 years, a lot of the more senior NCOs and a lot of the officers, a lot of the generals had already fought in North America. They knew the terrain was difficult. They knew how to deploy their troops and use them. They would move around quickly. They would... The British certainly didn't rely on firepower. They would fire one volley and then they'd charge in with bayonets because they knew that if they did fight at, at range for an extended period, the rebels would probably get the upper hand because uh, they tended to outnumber the British. And they also, and this is one of the truths of the American founding myth, a lot of them did have guns and a lot of them did actually use guns and practice with guns. So they were pretty good uh, with their guns. Uh, so the British learned that the best way to stop them was to stab them. Yeah. yeah, don't don't get into a shooting match with people who are better shots than you. Yeah, exactly. drive drive them off the field with with scary sharp bayonets instead. Big long guns for show, bayonets. knives for a pro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. You talk about British guerrilla tactics. Can you give some examples of a few of them. Oh yeah, I mean we have the light infantry already, but we have to remember, maybe touching this later on as well, that the war was far more dynamic than just rebel Americans versus British soldiers. So on the British side, you had uh, German troops, normally called Hessians mm -hmm. incorrectly, because uh, over half of them didn't actually come from the German state of Hesse-Kassel. But anyway, that's a different topic. Again, a different rage. Uh, you had loyalist Americans who were just as good at fighting guerrilla tactics as uh, their rebel counterparts. Uh, so groups like the Queen's Rangers, who were uh, formed to almost to combat uh, these sort of lighter rebel formations and crucially often overlooked you had native americans who are the masters of guerrilla tactics in north america because they invented it mm -hmm. uh, it's their land so the vast majority of native tribes if they didn't become if they didn't stay neutral they uh, joined the british against the colonists uh, and that gave the british access to uh, all of their skills at frontier warfare it didn't really break into the uh, the the east eastern seaboard or the east coast where there were big pitched battles happening but where there were large native settlements more towards the west on the frontier in ohio or the edge of the carolinas or up in canada native americans uh, provided a lot of assistance to british forces uh, in those sorts of areas because they knew the woods they uh, were often well equipped with firearms rifles things like that which could combat the uh, american riflemen so they were a big assistance 
to the Crown forces and bigged up their ability to go toe-to-toe in guerrilla warfare. So when you see a lot of the portrayal of kind of the relationship between Native Americans and uh, and the British, whether at this stage rebel or coming in to king, kick the rebels about, it's always generally portrayed as this, like, white man is a major twat and we'd just rather he wasn't there. So how come then the Native Americans are choosing a side and then are choosing that side? Or should I say, because some choose the other side as well, what makes those particular tribes, A, enter this war, and B, pick the side that they pick? Yeah, it's generally a case of a rock and a hard place for most native tribes. They generally don't want to get involved because, in a way, this isn't their war. It's, you know, an interseen war between different types of British people, Mm. essentially, at this point. But the nature of the way that they interact uh, with the colonial situation, which they're neighbours with, or even living amongst at this point, they just have to be drawn in. They have to pick a side because otherwise they'll be targeted uh, by one or the other. And we'll maybe talk about this later on, that there are native tribes that attempt to stay neutral and they are attacked because uh, one side doesn't trust that they really are neutral and aren't secretly assisting the other side. So a lot of them are dragged in. And it's quite often said among historians that the Native Americans are the biggest losers of the revolution because the British can just go off when they lose. The loyalists suffer a bit, but they can mostly just go off when they lose. Native Americans are stuck there with uh, the new United States, most of whom they've just been fighting because it's pretty clear from a native perspective if you're going to have to pick two, one between two sides, probably going to back the one that's more distant, so the actual British state and King George, as opposed to the guys who are literally moving onto your land and taking your crops and driving you out of your settlements. So that's why a lot of the native tribes fall down on the side of the British, not because of particular shared bonds between the British and the natives, but because it's the lesser of two evils. Yeah. And how come then that some of them are taking the rebel side then? Yeah, well, it comes down a lot to the personal relationships between negotiators from both sides and the native tribes. So the British were quite good at negotiating with natives. Again, they'd been doing it a lot for decades. There was a department called uh, the Indian Department, which was responsible for training up people who would then go and literally live among the tribes and sort of get to know them and establish good relationships because it's very important for a lot of native tribes to have a personal bond with the people they're negotiating with. So the British were quite good at that already. But there are a few cases where people who would become rebels had good relationships with certain tribes and were able to get them on side with Congress uh, when it became a thing. And uh, so they did then back back the rebellion. But um, I'm not entirely sure of the figures, but it was definitely a, a pretty clear minority. Uh, it was only a couple of tribes come to mind. Um, and the rest sometimes would use that as an excuse to attack said tribes so they could have a bit of a civil war of their own going on. Yeah. Yeah, because there, there is a whole level of politics and conflict that's going on in between those tribes, whether we're there or not. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, we've seen you raging uh, on Twitter about TV and film. Now, we don't have time for a complete takedown of the Patriot, but you can if you you can if you wish. But <laughs> we we recently had the guys on from Fighting on Film that were talking about the details and historical accuracies in war films. Uh, but this is a period that's it's got its reduced number of war films. But which of them does who does it the worst and who does it the best? Yeah, I mean, apart from the Patriot, right? And weirdly, I'll I'll give Patriot a very brief mention in a positive light. The uniform good Lord, is stand by everybody. This is going to be rare. I couldn't even. Think yeah, of no, it. this is. A, you've got to you've got to try and give an even hand here. The uniforms are pretty good. They kind of they kind of fall down because they're good in terms of that's uh, if you open a history book of this is a British uniform in the 1770s, it would look like that. They fall down because they don't have the, the campaign variations which all armies introduce in warfare. You know, the campaign and on-campaign soldiers will look a bit different from how they look in, you know, your textbooks. So they don't have that. The uniforms are okay. Apart from that, it's all shit. But anyway, I'm not going to talk about the Patriot. Um, yeah, I think, I think offhand, I've not really seen much of it, but Sons of Liberty, which I guess technically is just slightly pre-revolution, yeah. looks completely crap. Like, I've seen images of the main gang of the Sons of Liberty, who's it's like Samuel... Um, what his name? I had a mind blank. 
Anyway, the main, ag- main agitators in Boston, which led to the revolution, and they're kind of standing there, and they're all wearing like leather jackets and their pirate party hats and stuff that just, you know, it looks totally and completely inaccurate. Beards, not a thing in the period. Everyone shaved. Even if they were out in the frontier, almost definitely pretty well shaved. Uh, I'm getting I'm getting sidetracked. Anyway, Sons of Liberty, I don't really know because I've not watched much of it. I've watched bits. It just seems terrible. The good one is John Adams, the HBO series. It's quite old now. Right. Um, still not perfect. Mm. Stuff like this, mistakes in the Boston Massacre scene and stuff like that. It does okay. I think it gets the spirit of it. Not an expert on the founding fathers or John Adams, so maybe you know someone can come on and rage about that because maybe it's all wrong. But from what I do know, it looked pretty spot on. Everything from the costumes and stuff to kind of like the spirit. Uh, they even talk in sort of English accents or semi-English accents because they don't have the American twang yet or not to the extent they do now. So that mm-hmm. does okay. Um, I hear a lot about Turn, which I have watched, uh, the one about spies. Yeah, It's quite good but then also bad it's difficult it does the shitty thing that the patriot does and turns a historical figure into just a completely ridiculous caricature of a bad guy um so i mentioned earlier the queen's rangers their commander john grave simcoe mm. was actually a pretty good guy um he later became the governor of canada and abolished slavery there making it one of the first uh, british possessions to sort of outlaw slavery uh, and he was generally just considered a, a pretty good guy. But in the show of Turn, he's a literal psychopath. He, like, murders people. He's just, he's completely crazy. So that's a lot of crap. It does do some good stuff in so much as it, it shows you that it's very diverse. It's not just the Americans fighting the British. There are, like, some Hessians. There's loyalists. There's Native Americans. There's escaped slaves. don't know if there's French. Maybe French. I don't know. So that does okay. And I know it's got a lot of fans online, so I don't want to get hate. So <laughs> I can give Turn, like, a six, six out of ten, maybe a seven. Is there any any particular kind of representation in media that you've seen, whether it be um, novel or whether it be film or TV series, that, that you felt, okay, it might not have been kind of bang on with costumes and things like that, but it did justice to the conflict? Mm, that's a good question. I do think John Adams, you just kind of feel... I mean, it's completely false because I'm sure it, in reality it's really not like that at all. But when you watch it, you kind of go, hey, it was probably kind of like that. Which, if you know a lot about subjects, you just can't you can't get into a show if you know too much about mm-hmm. periods because the chances are it's not going to work at all. I love watching sort of classical history, ancient history stuff because I have very little knowledge about it. So I can easily just get, you know, swept up in uh, in everything that's going on. But when you know about it, you're like, ah, I don't know about that. Could he load his musket that quickly? Probably not. Yeah, like I said, I respect Turn for showing some nuance in terms of all the different characters involved in the conflict because it was very not black and white or one side against the other. There were a lot of divided loyalties. Um, yeah, there is one uh, old film, I think it's just called Revolution, and it's kind of a weird one because it's about the American Revolution and it was filmed in winter in England. And you can tell because it's a dreary, miserable landscape. <laughs> um <laughs> Even if they're trying to pretend it's sort of New England in the winter, it's like, that ah, it doesn't really look right. But uh, but it's pretty gritty. It's better than The Patriot. Um, and it's stuff like that. If you want to do a rip on The oh. Patriot, then let, let's open that Patriot floodgate while we're here. Uh, okay. Here's your... I'm totally off script here. Here's your chance. I don't even know <clears throat> what I'm going to talk about. But instinctively, it's just, it, just a whole mythology of how the British are just completely inept. Like there's a scene where they, one guy, the hero, the American hero, and his three kids ambush a column of like 20, 30 redcoats. And they shoot them with their rifles from the trees. And the redcoats don't know what to do because they try and stand in a line and shoot back even though they can't see who's attacking them. And then they get shot down one by one. And it's like, what the fuck? Who would do that? In no other genre of war film would you see anyone who are meant to be that good be so inept. And then it also has the famous scene with the. um... Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, whilst we're on the subject of things that didn't happen but appear in The Patriots, there's quite a famous, uh, infamous scene where the villainous British lock a load of villagers into a church and set it on fire. Now, that's taken directly from Nazi Germany and atrocities carried out on the Eastern Front and areas occupied by the actual Nazis and didn't happen in the American <laughs> Connollys. Connollys? Connollys! <laughs> yes, Billy was there. Uh, but didn't happen in, in the colonies. Or did it? What kind of atrocities and brutality occurred? Well, I've actually done... This is specifically what my PhD is on, so I could go on for a while. But, go for it. Um, yeah. In a way, and I'm nervous now in case it did happen, and I don't know about it, but as far as I'm aware, only one incident like that happened, and it was actually the rebel Americans who were doing the killing, and the victims were Native Americans. I'll talk about that in a second. The incident in the Patriot where they get herded into a church and it gets set on fire and they all perish in the flames, um, I've read was a straight lift from uh, the producer's script for Saving Private Ryan because they had the same producer, I think. And apparently there was going to be a scene where the SS do what they actually did and herd people into a enclosed space and murder them all. But uh, for whatever reason, it didn't make the final cut. And the producer who later made The Patriot just went, ah, I'll just use it in this film. Well, so you don't need the, to make uh, the Nazis evil, do you? You need something there to make the British that evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think uh, maybe they were getting their wires yeah. crossed because, of course, the uh, Empire in Star Wars is kind of based on the Nazis, but all the officers in the Empire have British accents. Of course, because nobody so does evil like going, British. Oh, well, mm. British people, Nazis, same thing. Yes. So I believe that's where that scene from The Patriot came. It doesn't have any particular basis in reality apart from the incident, which I'll talk about. Generally, civilians did suffer quite a bit in the revolution, but not uh, in a big, single, dramatic, terrible, horrible massacre. Uh, I can't think of any incidents where either side rounded up a bunch of civilians and just killed them. All sorts of other atrocities happened. There was lots of raping. There was lots of pillaging. Homes were burned. Sometimes, occasionally, civilians might have been killed. Um, We know, especially the very first day of the fighting, when the British were retreating uh, towards Boston, having had it handed to them uh, at Lexington and Concord, that on the way there, they were so enraged because people kept sniping at them from the windows of houses they were passing. So they started to just break into random houses. They went and they would kill anyone they found in there. Civilians, women. I don't think I've heard of children being killed, but certainly some women. Uh, So that did happen. But there wasn't, I think, a cold-blooded single incident where everyone was rounded up, apart from at, and I'm going to have to check the pronunciation of this because I've only ever seen it written down. Uh, It's called Janaden Hutton, which is a Native American uh, Mm. settlement. And that was, um, I can't actually remember offhand, the the tribe that lived there. Um, Actually, it was a Moravian Native American, so they were Christian Native Americans. And they had tried to stay neutral. As we mentioned earlier, they were one of the tribes that tried to stay neutral. But the local rebel forces believed that they were supplying grain to the British, which they weren't, but they thought they were. And then that was just mixed in with a whole bunch of the racism that you got from uh, the colonial American frontier. They decided to get together and they headed off, the militia, rebel militia headed off to this tribe. They rounded them all up, they put them in a barn, and they killed them by beating them on the head, all of them, and then they set fire to the barn. And the only reason we know about it is because two children played dead and then managed to get out before they were burned alive and reported it. So that is the closest we have to what actually happened to the Patriots, except it was the opposite side, and they were murdering Native Americans, which they had carte blanche to do because of the racial stereotyping and the horrible ideas that colonial America had um, about Native Americans. There were 
other atrocities committed to soldiers of the other side, not to civilians. So there was quite a bit of that. And that is where the British do come in with a bit of blame. Mm-hmm. Um, we get that blurred line where professional soldiers will talk about it in accounts, you know, right through history, right up to the modern day, where soldiers, elite soldiers who are convinced of their own superiority are conducting a difficult and dangerous operation against enemy soldiers and they get a bit out of hand. They maybe kill a bunch of people while they're surrendering. It doesn't look great. So this happens, uh, not numerous, but at least three or four times, well-publicized times where the British will attack uh, rebel positions, rebel troops, and they'll kill a bunch. And because they rely on their bayonets, so it's all up close. It's the British combat doctrine of the period as you stab them. It's kind of blurred as to who's surrounding, who's not. There are accounts that sometimes uh, rebels will pretend to surrender, wait till the British are leaving, and then pick the guns up and shoot them. And then this all feeds into this idea that you can't trust them. And then you get these atrocities. So there's a bunch of different, what Americans call massacres, uh, wax halls, Powley, Old Tappan, where British troops go a bit overboard uh, on the rebels. But the rebels are very clever because they use these incidents and really big them up with propaganda. And they introduce this sort of like forensic early journalism, mm-hmm. which we haven't really seen in history before then, where they get people to gather up the survivors and they make them uh, give testimonies in court and they count the number of wounds on them and they say, you know, very uh, legalistically, tell us what happened and they document it all and then they publish it. And North America has a very good uh, printing media system at the time, so they can spread these accounts really widely. And the British don't really have an answer to it because it, on the most part, it did happen. It might be as exaggerated, uh, but there are these incidents and then it just causes more people to back the rebellion. And the small gains that the British have got from winning these little victories haven't really outweighed the big recruitment drive that the Patriots can use from these incidents to then improve their own forces. You talked, or you mentioned a little earlier about the massacres, um, particularly the Boston Massacre um, is one that's, that's reasonably uh, infamous. You know, how much of that is war crime? How much of that is terrified soldiers lashing out? Yeah, it's a blurred line. I think, I mean, famously, uh, it's John Adams himself who defends the British soldiers and does so successfully. And yeah, one of exactly the, one of the American founding fathers was on. Yeah, and he partly decides to do it because he says uh, we don't want people in Britain to think that we're going to do a lynch mob on these soldiers because that would be the easy thing to do, right? Um, but he was, you know, pro-revolution, although it hadn't broken out yet, but he wanted it to be very clear that justice was being done. It kind of feeds into what I talked about, whereby the Americans would kind of document everything and have everything sort of being like, this is the correct legal thing that we should be doing. So he successfully defends the soldiers um, that committed the, the massacre, I think, pretty fairly. You know, I don't want to sound biased. I think it's been covered a lot by a lot of historians, I think general consensus is it was a very unfortunate situation the soldiers were put into. Uh, you know, they're surrounded by a mob. They're being physically attacked with um, ice, snow, clubs. You know, they are actually physically striking at them. Um, the crowd are shouting, fire, fire at us, shoot us, damn you, stuff like that. And then someone shoots and the rest is literally history. So, yeah, that's, that is just another example that the Americans can then use to... Uh, uh, for propaganda purposes, because British soldiers shoot civilians all the time in Britain in this period. It happens yeah. every like three or four years. There were two so-called massacres just a couple of years before uh, Boston Massacre in Britain, and it gains no traction because no one cares because it happens a lot. And people just go, oh, the army was probably in the right. They were rioters, whatever. Who cares? Um, I mean, even in the midst of the American Revolution, you have the Gordon Riots in London, which are insanely big. They torch part of London. There's a mob uh, that wants to stop Catholic emancipation. Mm-hmm. So they riot and they torch London and then the army is called in and the army opens fire on these mobs. They kill hundreds, I think 200 people. And it is all forgotten about in a couple of years. And if that had happened in North America, it would have just been crazy. Yeah, still be talking about it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a big uh, disjointment in terms of uh, the North American understanding of how the army operates in the 18th century. And then the, the shit stirrers, shall we call them, uh, can uh, use that to, to stir up this uh, rebellious sentiment. 
Yeah, when we say the term their propaganda, we're not talking like outright lies. You know, they, these things did happen. And the Americans look at this and go, well, this has happened. And, well, this is a way that actually we can use that to help the cause. Pretty standard politics, really, isn't it? Absolutely. But the Americans were so far ahead of the curve compared to the British. The British are constantly playing catch up in the PR department. Um, for whatever reason, like I said, North America had a strong printed newspaper pamphlet, stuff like that. Um, well, it's where every protest starts, that. isn't it? Every protest exactly. starts yeah. with a newsletter. Every movement starts. Even the French yeah. resistance yeah. starts with a newsletter. Yeah, there you go. So uh, they're able to use that. Uh, they do occasionally invent things early on. Uh, so the Boston Massacre, the, the Sons of Liberty, who are the main revolutionaries in Boston, publish um, a journal called the Journal of Occurrences, where they supposedly record every misdemeanor done by British soldiers in Boston while it's occupied, you know, from striking a woman on the street, stealing stuff, or, you know, soldiers being rowdy in a tavern, and they write all this down and then they publish it constantly. And some of that is pretty made up. But uh, but yeah, a lot of it, as you say, there is more than a grain of truth in it. And the British army doesn't want to engage in this. It doesn't care about propaganda. It's there to win a war. It wants to fight pitch battles, defeat the Continental Army, go home. So British commanders, who, because of the Atlantic and the distance, are kind of having to do everything. They're having to come up with the, the strategy, but also win hearts and minds and reintroduce um, law and order in the areas they've occupied. They don't want to have to engage in propaganda back and forth, letters and pamphlets and tracts. They just want to do their job, which is to fight battles. Yeah. Uh, so they're not best equipped for that sort of thing. If you've got to win these hearts and minds, <laughs> if you've got to win the hearts and minds of the American people, only to look at something like the European Union referendum, split 52-48. You know, you've got the Scottish independence referendum, which is what, 60-40? Uh, 55-45. 5545, would it be fair to say that there is a significant kind of pro-Remain section of American society at the time that's gone, hang on a minute, we're not Americans, we're British. Uh, okay, God save the king and just just pipe it down. <laughs> the, you know, it, it's not that all of America was baying up for independence, is no, absolutely. Uh, I think, I'm kind of getting sick of mentioning him, but I think it was John Adams, here we go again, he famously said that it was split into thirds. So you'd have a third pro-revolution, a third loyalist, and a third didn't want to get involved or didn't care. I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. I think that the loyalist element is smaller than a third, and the revolutionary element is a bit bigger. So maybe sort of 40% pro-revolution, 25-ish percent loyalist the big difference comes down to the fact that the revolutionaries are more organized more proactive and they get shit done right at the start so typically you read that the revolution starts in 1775 it does that's when the first gunshots are but in a way it started at least a year earlier because the revolutionary movement seizes all of the levers of power in colonial america they run loyalists out of positions of authority so judges forced to flee to boston british occupied boston for their safety uh, the militia are purged of loyalist officers so only pro-revolutionary officers will be in command of the militia which is why the militia obviously are all revolutionaries when the fighting starts mm-hmm. uh, so they've seized the means of power so when the fighting does begin the loyalist element are isolated they are basically ganged up on, especially because the militia are essentially the police force of the colonial period. So if the police all want revolution and you are against revolution, probably not going to do great. Yeah, and you can at that point because we don't have a second amendment to a constitution (laughs) that isn't there yet, do we? (laughs) Yeah, uh, we come later. So all the loyalists have is the British Army, and the British Army is very small in the period, and they can't be everywhere at once. So loyalists are left to fend for themselves, and they're essentially picked off. They're either intimidated into uh, not speaking out or they are physically run out of town literally uh, they get tarred and feathered infamously that's sort of the punishment inflicted on loyalist officials some places they try to fight back doesn't go well either so in south carolina in 1776 there's a loyalist uprising against congress 
because they're basically on their own at that point, they are defeated by the, the rebel militias. Um, mm. So it kind of becomes a catch trait too, because later on the British look at South Carolina and say, oh, there were loads of loyalists there in 1776, and they just needed some help at the time, which we couldn't give them. If we go back now, four years later, then, then they can help us. And the British go back, but by then the loyalists are gone. They've been killed, they've been run out of town, or they're too scared to answer the call to arms and, and back the British anymore. So because the revolutionaries have control of government of all the systems of power in the colonies, including the, the written word, um, then they're easily able to isolate the loyalist support. Bearing in mind also there are a lot of people who just don't want to die or have their livelihoods ruined, which is, I think it's safe to say, is a solid majority of everyone in North America. A lot of people are just going to back the winner. They don't want to get mm -hmm. uh, drawn into drawn into this interesting conflict. And it really was a, yeah. a civil war, even more so than the American Civil War. At least in the Civil War, you had, very broadly speaking, the North versus the South. If you lived in a street in Charleston, South Carolina, in 1861, 95% of everyone else living in your street was going to be a Confederate. If you lived in a street in Charleston in... 1776 who knows it could be 50 50 it could be 40 60 uh the divides aren't based on geography they're based on just personal political viewpoint um loyalists yeah. tend to be a bit wealthier uh, but that's not always the case they tend to be uh merchants and the like who uh, benefit a lot from trade with britain uh, but again not always the case uh it could be anything really there's all sorts of local antagonisms as well so in South Carolina, the people who live on the frontier really hate the plantation class that live on the coast because they see them as rich, stuck-up snobs. And likewise, the plantation class in South Carolina hate the, the hillbillies on the frontier. So initially, because the plantation class is backing the revolution, a lot of the frontier folk didn't necessarily want to become revolutionaries, even though we have this concept that, you know, it was the, the bearded man on the frontier with the rustic clothing and the rifle that was the yeah. arch enemy of the British, which wasn't always the case. Uh, so it is a very muddy and uh, mixed up situation, a, a classic civil war, really. Was there any sort of, I mean, post, let's suppose the British defeat, what do you say, 1783? Yep. That the, the whole thing's over. Was there any sort of, like, resistance afterwards? Uh, yes, but not from quarters you might expect. Uh, the loyalists at this point really do are given the ultimatum, you know, either you stay and accept your American citizens now and possibly have your home confiscated for what you did during the war, or you get out. Uh, so there wasn't really any more resistance after 1783 from loyalists. You do still see resistance from the two groups that suffer the most from the revolution, that is enslaved peoples and Native Americans. So the Native Americans... Hmm. Weirdly, the fighting on the frontier doesn't follow the course of the fighting on the eastern seaboard. So by 1783, the Native Americans are actually gaining the upper hand on the frontier. And it kind of looks like, you know, they could kind of win that theater of the war. But the British say, we're pulling out now, you know, it's done in, in, on the big battlefields. It's, we've lost there. So we're going now and they pull support, which the natives rely upon. But a lot of native tribes continue to fight on, not necessarily officially. You can't say the war continued in the exact same form it did. But over the next two decades, yeah. there's a lot of fighting between native tribes and the new United States. Um, and you also get enslaved people. So the British offered freedom for slaves who fled from their masters if their masters were rebels. Important distinction, they would not give freedom if your master was a loyalist. Because, you know, it was Ooh. it was classic Two-Faced that the British... Yeah, we sweep that under the carpet, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, right from the off, the British were not emancipatory in their attitude towards uh, enslaved peoples. There were some, you know, people abolitionist-minded. I've mentioned John Gray of Simcoe, who was an officer who then did free end slavery in Canada. Uh, but yeah, let's be honest, the, the main thrust of British policy towards enslaved peoples was, what can they do for us? Not what can we do for them? Yeah, them, be, them being them being freed damages the exactly. rebels who previously owned them, rather than it being the, the obvious nature of, of get freeing them because they should be free. Exactly, they were used as a war resource, mm. um, which kind of was a very double-edged sword. 
for the British because when they started freeing slaves from rebel masters, that caused a massive panic in the plantation class in the South who had these nightmares about slave uprisings and well, what's going to happen if the British free them and give them guns? You know, they're going to come back and kill us all. So that actually drove the plantation class into the arms of the revolutionaries. But when the war finished, again, the British, the way they abandoned the Native Americans, they abandoned the enslaved peoples who had been fighting for them. In some cases, the enslaved peoples fight on. So now freed peoples. Um, there's stories of um, a group of former slaves in, I think it's South Carolina, who call themselves um, the King of England soldiers or King George's soldiers. And they mount uh, sort of a, a tiny guerrilla war from these swamps where they've taken refuge uh, up until I think it's 84, 85, before they're eventually sort of tracked down and uh, recaptured. So, yeah, there is still fighting going on after 83, in a sense. It's just it's the disadvantaged peoples who have been left behind after the main conflict itself. Yeah, the British got defeated, the paperwork sorted, you have an America, we can get, we'll we, we leave now. Exactly. exactly. Okay, so one contribution that doesn't get often spoke about, um, you have briefly mentioned it earlier on, is the French, ever present at the time to be a thorn in the British side. Of course. Apologies to our listeners in France, but you know, it's history, it's what happens. So, what were the French doing, and how important was the French contribution to the outcome? Oh, I mean, the French contribution was vital. It's, again, you can debate it endlessly, and because it's counterfactual, we'll never know. But I would be tempted to say that there would have been some sort of settlement, slightly short of full independence, if it hadn't been for France's involvement um, for the, the colonials. I think they would have got their independence, inevitably, but I don't think it would have been clear-cut, because France underpins all the efforts and it's not just when they officially declare war either so france provides hundreds of thousands of muskets ammunition cannons even uh, one of the reasons that the british were headed to lexington at the start of the war was to confiscate weapons which included two cannons um, which the french might have supplied and they're providing that material sort of on the sly it's not official at this point but they're more than happy to stir up uh, rebellion in the colonies, just for the obvious reason, it fucks the British up you know, on a global stage. It's it's going to reduce the British Empire. The French are obviously very unhappy that 15 years earlier they had lost their American territories to the British, mm-hmm. and now they can kind of get one back, and it, it makes sense. They're a bit hesitant because they don't know if the rebels can do it. They don't know how legitimate they are as a movement, but after uh, 1777, you have the Battle of Saratoga, where the British suffer a rare defeat in sort of an almost open battle, and the French go, yeah, let's, let's back this. So they then actually send troops, and they send fleets, and fleets are the key because the colonists don't have a naval presence whatsoever, almost whatsoever, uh, but if the French are now sending warships, then they can intercept uh, the British Royal Navy fleets as they ferry troops and supplies over from Britain, they can cut the supply lines back to Britain, and they kind of leave the British in America high and dry, stranded, essentially. So the French naval involvement is big. The French military, sort of the army involvement on the on the ground, gets off to a shaky, shaky start. They are defeated in the first engagement they fight in North America. They team up with the rebels and attack Savannah, which is in um, Georgia, and it's held by the British, and they get pasted, and they then depart in their fleets because they have access to fleets because they're you know a superpower and they sail north to Newport in Rhode Island and they try and attack that British garrison there and they fail there as well well actually they arrive after the Americans have already failed the Americans are trying to coordinate with them but they don't quite manage to link up successfully so there's teething problems it's not like a, a flick of a switch and suddenly the French are involved and it's all over But the British have to change strategy now that the French are involved. They can't rely on the fact that they can always escape by the sea because previously British commanders knew if it starts getting really hairy, head back to the coast to a port, Royal Navy will come pick you up, sort it. You can recycle, you can come back again somewhere else. So uh, suddenly in 78, the British commander-in-chief Henry Clinton goes, oh, we can't rely on the fact that we can always escape by sea anymore. He's in Philadelphia at the time. 
And he goes, could conceivably become stranded here. If the French land an army, got Washington on the other side, going to become stranded, it's going to be a disaster. Could end the war in 78. So he has to abandon Philadelphia. He falls back to the coast. He evacuates from the coast to New York, manages to get there five days before a French invasion fleet turns up to cut him off. So if that fleet had arrived five days earlier, then we would have had Yorktown in 1778. And it would have been game over, you know, five years earlier. Uh, and that is exactly what eventually happens at Yorktown. Cornwallis goes, not really making any ground here. He gets ordered to retreat to the coastal coast of Virginia, the settlement of Yorktown, which has a good port. And he thinks Clinton's going to come and pick him up with the fleet. And the fleet does turn up, but it's a French fleet. Uh, so he then can't evacuate. Washington comes down from New York and surrounds him on the land side and it's game over. And Britain can't afford to lose land armies like that. So they, uh, that's, that's basically, that's why people think it ends in 81. To all intents and purposes, the major British operations do end in 81. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> that, that's opened my eyes to an awful lot of things that I knew absolutely nothing about. Um, my apologies to our uh, American listeners that I knew pretty much nothing about what is predominantly the focal point of uh, of your country's history. Um, so thank you very much for uh, for getting that off your chest and into our listeners' ears. My pleasure. I hope I didn't speak too quickly. I can when I get agitated, but uh, yeah. but it wasn't the hair dryer treatment. So um, yeah, I'm glad. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more, then let me suggest that you can uh, follow Robbie on Twitter at Robbie McNiven, and that's Mac. MAC, um, where we will happily receive a, twi- a Twitter pile on from any of our US listeners. But Love once it. again, Robbie, thank you very much. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage and would like taxing and representing, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon, as this helps us really meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to book questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Now that is the end of Series 6, so we're going to take a week off, but we will see you again in a fortnight. Until then, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.